all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I would urge you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. As today we're going to be reading verses 21 through 33. As you know, we've been um, reading through 1 Kings. And we've seen the division of the kingdom, that division that God promised would happen. He promised Solomon it would happen because of his apostasy. Uh, his failure to keep his covenant commitments and his worship of false gods. And uh, we are going to see now also what happened in the northern kingdom, unfortunately, after that division. But before we uh, turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word and let's uh, ask for his help. God, our Father, I confess I need your help today in order to preach your word. As I stand here, I am very weak. And uh, Lord, I, I need your sustaining grace. I will need it to keep my mind clear. And I do pray, Lord, that I would say nothing that would be out of keeping with your word or would send your people in the wrong direction. We know that this word that you have given to us is a treasure, it's a light, it's a lamp. And it wasn't simply given to people thousands of years ago for their good. It was also given to us in this very moment. You intended for us on this day to hear this message. So therefore, I pray you would wake us up and that you would help us to hear your word. Lord, I pray with John the Baptist that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would simply use me as your messenger to deliver the message that you want your saints to hear today. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verses 21 through 33. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel. And the other he put up in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people who went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he, that he made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. 
and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, one of the things that you're going to see as we get into this portion of First Kings, now that the kingdom is divided, and we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, is that the, you're going to see each king, uh, as he's introduced, being appraised on an objective ground. Now, the ground uh, is not his conquests, uh, his, the way that he grew the kingdom, or the way that it shrank, his, uh, his ability in war, how handsome he was, what a great political speaker he was. In fact, there are no political and economic grounds that are going to be brought to bear to measure the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, as a rule, the formula is going to be simply he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, or he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And the grounds upon which they're going to be judged in the South in particular is the faithfulness of David. So it's going to be a religious test that is applied to all of these kings. How faithful were they in keeping the word of God? Now, continuing the tradition of Andy Ruin's books, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you that all of the northern kings fail this test. All of them are unfaithful to the word of God. None of them ever repent. Never, none of them ever produce any form of reformation. We'll, uh, we will see that uh, they're just going to unfortunately get worse and worse. There's a brief blip on Jehu, but he never, he never makes it either. Uh, the sad thing is most of the southern kings the kings of Judah, they flunk as well. There's only two who really shine. And then there's some also rans and then some utter, utter disasters. But, uh, and incidentally, from this point onwards as well, you're increasingly going to see the northern kingdom spoken of as Israel and the southern kingdom spoken of as Judah. But once again, the, uh, the section that we read, it starts out focusing on the southern king, the king of Judah now, uh, Rehoboam the son of Solomon. Rehoboam had done many stupid things, Syriadim. He had followed the advice of the young men that he grew up with instead of the wise advisors of his father. And he starts here by finally doing something right, which is, is wonderful. That is, after disregarding good advice, he finally listens to God's word delivered through the prophet Shemaiah, who lets him know that although he has assembled this mighty army of 180,000 men to go and reconquer the northern kingdom, that this thing will not work that he is planning. He will not prevail because he will find himself fighting against the will of the Lord. The split between the two kingdoms was God's will. This was God's punishment for Solomon's apostasy, just as he had said would happen. It happened. And Rehoboam... Perhaps he may think he can prevail against men, but he knows he is not going to prevail against the will of the Lord, and the rest of the army understands that as well. Uh, so he, he um, abstains from his, his original plan. Uh, it does not matter how many men you assemble to fight against the Lord, it is not going to work. So he stops that foolishness. Now, with that, the attention switches, of course, from Rehoboam in the south to Jeroboam in the north. And you remember that the prophet Ahijah was the one who had been sent by the Lord to anoint Jeroboam. 
And when God sent Ahijah to anoint Jeroboam as the king of the northern tribes, he had given him this promise. You'll, if you want to look back one chapter to uh, 1 Kings 11, and starting with verse 37, we read, So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires. And you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. So the question, of course, as we start out here is, will Jeroboam take hold of that promise? Will Jeroboam believe what the Lord has said and and set up a godly kingdom uh, in the north? Will he turn away from the apostasy of of Solomon? Will he walk by faith? Well, what kind of man was he? Well, let me give you an anecdote from American history. On on December 22nd, 1952, a month before his inauguration, Dwight uh, Eisenhower made some uh, famous remarks regarding the the grounds of American government. He said this, We hold that all men are endowed by their creator, not by the accident of their birth, not by the color of their skins or by anything else, but all men are endowed by their creator. In other words, he explained, our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. He actually said that. Jeroboam probably would have considered that to be sage advice. It doesn't really matter what the religion is, as long as there's a religion that provides a unifying factor for the people and serves that political ends. Uh, Like Ike, he was a political man, and he was obviously an opportunist. He was not a man of deep faith. We can see that immediately in Yahweh. Promises from prophets, he would have said, were all very, very nice, but... His was a new kingdom. Uh, If the people, he reasoned, continued to go south uh, on the stated uh, uh, days of the various feasts to worship God in his temple in Jerusalem, according to the regular cycle of feast days that God had appointed, then uh, one of the most important purposes of the temple might actually take hold. You see, one of the reasons that God had appointed one central space for all the people to worship at One place, of course, a very important place. This was Mount Moriah. Mount Zion, where the temple was built, was actually on the same location where uh, Abraham had almost sacrificed his son, you remember. And then, of course, this would be very close to the locale upon which eventually Jesus Christ, our Savior, would be sacrificed on Calvary. But there was another purpose to bring in all the people on a regular basis according to the cycle of feast days to that one central location. And that was to remind them that while they were from different tribes scattered all throughout uh, the promised land, they were part of the same covenant family. They all worshipped the same God. They were called to be part of the same kahal, the same assembly. And eventually, they would all be brought together in that same triumphant church brought uh, out of the world. And if that happened, if they remembered that, then the schisms between the north and the south might be healed. 
And they might think to themselves, they might say, isn't the Messiah, God's promised redeemer, supposed to arise from the line of Judah? Not from the line of Ephraim, like our kings. Shouldn't, shouldn't Judah be the line of kings, therefore? <laughs> Didn't Jacob say the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes? And he was afraid, well, if, they, if that happens, they, they might rise up and they might kill me and that'll be the end of me and my line and so on. So what does he do? He makes a political decision. His position depends upon continuing schism for as long as possible until reunion becomes unthinkable. He wants them to be disunited until the point at which they, they think of themselves as totally separate people, uh, at war, in conflict, and so on. So he does everything he can to splinter their religious unity with Jude at that point. So the first thing that he does, and it's unbelievable when you think about it, is to repeat the sin of Aaron in making images of God. You remember that uh, at Mount Sinai, Moses had gone up onto the mountain into the clouds. He'd, uh, he'd been gone for 40 days. The people assumed that he'd been consumed by, by this terrifying cloud which represented the presence of God, the thundering and so on. This man, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. He's, he's probably deceased. And so they demanded of Aaron, you, you need to, you know, all, all religious um, centering in our, uh, in our community now is gone. We need, you to, we need you to create something for us. So what had happened? They had created, or Aaron had created, a golden calf for them. He gave Moses the ridiculous uh, explanation. I cast the gold into the fire and outlived this calf. But the important thing to note that Aaron did is he tied that image to God. He did not say, these are new false gods for you to worship. He said, no, no, no. These now uses the word Elohim, which is plural, but he's indicating it's God. These are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, this is the same God who led you through the, uh, the, the, dead, uh, the Red Sea, rather, parted it led you through the desert, and has been supporting you and making all these promises to you. This is just a representation of God, guys. You don't have to go down to the temple. We have these two wonderful representations of God. We'll put them at uh, either end of the kingdom so you'll always be able to get to them. They're convenient. Their location is, is you know, is uh, easy to get to. You can't yet worship them online, but, you know, a few thousand years, we'll, we'll get that. And let's face it, uh, there's, there's, some, there's some, some changes we need to make to make our, our worship more seeker-sensitive, let's, let's call it that, more, uh, more, more people-oriented, less, less high and exalted, less stuffy, and so on. First off, uh, you don't need to go to the temple. I mean, that's, that's far away. Besides, it's, it's boring. Uh, and it's exclusive. You notice it's only these Levites who get to, to actually do the worshiping stuff. They're the only ones who are allowed to do the sacrifices and so on. Well, that's not fair, keeping it to one tribe of, of trained, you know, religious people. That's, that's wrong. No, we need, to, we need to expand the number of people who, who can do this. We need to be more egalitarian about this. All the tribes should be able to, to be priests of God, shouldn't they? And also, shouldn't it be that we should all be able to see what's going on? Shouldn't it be, you know, a, a, a spectacle? It shouldn't be the case that they go into the building to burn the incense and do things like that, and we can't see them. We all have to stand apart. And wouldn't it be cooler if we got closer to God ourselves? So what we're going to do is we're going to go to high places, 
and we're going to have priests from all the different tribes and everybody's going to have a chance to participate and see and so on. It's going to be much more interactive. Out with the old worship, in with the new worship. You get to be a priest and you get to be a priest and you get to be a priest and you get to be a priest. Everybody gets to be a priest. And confetti falls from the ceiling at that point in time. And everybody's like, wow, this sounds great. Finally, we've got, we've got open work. Oh, and by the way, we're changing the worship calendar. Incidentally, Aaron did that as well. As soon as the calf leapt out of the fire, he said that tomorrow is a feast day. I'm ordaining a new holy day. And of course, he changes the calendar, so their religious rituals will be on different days. Same names for the feasts, but occurring at different times, which will create schism. No, we're right about the time. No, we're right about the time. He did everything that he could to break it up. Also, there's, it's more convenient for the harvest if we move the date just slightly ahead. Well, all of this was done by Jeroboam for political ends. He did the things that he devised in his own heart. And his people loved to have it so. They, they liked these changes. No more of the so-called regulative principle of worship. If we like it, we do it. If it seems like a good adjustment, we're going to make it. And we're going to assume that God is pleased with it because we are pleased with it. Unfortunately, this has been the rule of the natural man's worship since time immemorial. We assume that if we like something in worship, it must please God, regardless of whether or not he has told us to do it. Now, Chronicles, which parallels a lot of kings, tells us there was at least one good effect here. The Levites, you remember, they hadn't been given territories of their own. Instead, they had been given cities and common lands. It was God's intention to place the Levites in the midst of his people so that there would be religious instruction where, regardless of where you were uh, in Israel. The Levites would travel from time to time to go and minister at the temple themselves. But once their role as priests and teachers in the midst of the tribes had been cut off by Jeroboam and they're no longer able to live in the north from the tithes and offerings of God's people, they realized also that an abomination was happening. So we read in 2 Chronicles 11.13, and they're speaking of Rehoboam here, and from all their territories, this is the Levites, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him. Him there is Rehoboam. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord of their fa- God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So eventually three tribes would migrate to the south. Uh, that would be what well, would be found in the south. That was Benjamin, Judah, and then the Levites left Israel and journeyed south. And so they would be taken into exile. And we do see this wonderful rec- uh, reminder that there was still a remnant even in the north who realized that this new worship was wrong 
and they still made that, and it would have been politically very dangerous, they still made that journey south in order to worship in the way that God instructed. Now this is instructive to us, brothers and sisters. The Lord always preserves for himself a remnant in every age. The church will never be finally defeated. You remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we remember that gates are defensive structures, not offensive structures. You don't fight with gates. We remember that the church will never entirely be extinguished from the earth. They may get very, very small at times, but it will never be extinguished. So let me make some applications of this while my, my strength is fading. Um, all of this, obviously, should be a, an additional warning to us in this very day and age against adding things to or changing the worship of God. Jeroboam's additions took Israel away from the sacrifices and feasts and ceremonies, the, the cycle that was intended to show men their sins. As you went up to the temple and you saw the blood on the altar, you saw the sacrifices and the peace offerings and the sin offerings, you were reminded constantly, and as the word was being read, that man had sinned against his creator and was in need of a blood atonement. That without the shedding of blood, there was no possibility of atonement occurring. And all of these feasts and ceremonies were designed to point to their need of a final atonement. They was designed, just as the Passover lamb was designed beautifully, to point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so therefore, this religion, the true religion that was occurring in the South, was sufficient to build men up in the faith that the blessing of the nations would come, that the Redeemer, that Jehovah Sidkenu, God our righteousness, Emmanuel, God with us, would come and deliver them from their sins. Jeroboam, on the other hand, is creating a religion of works, righteousness, of do what you will, will worship, as it's been called, that takes us off in another direction. And the more we add things to it, the less biblical it becomes, the less it reminds us of Christ, the less it sends us in the right way. Uh, if you would look at your folder, there's a wise statement here by Phil Riken. He notes this. Jeroboam's idolatry reminds us how important it is to avoid the temptation to invent new religious rituals, but instead to follow the simple biblical rhythms of worship, singing and prayer, offerings and testimonies, the ministry of the word and sacrament with the confession of our faith. More importantly, what Jeroboam did is a reminder to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Understand that when Jeroboam rejected Jerusalem, he was rejecting the atoning sacrifices that were made there for sinners. The temple was the one and only place that God had appointed for the forgiveness of sins. Once Jeroboam rejected the worship of Jerusalem, it did not matter what else he did. He would never be saved because he had abandoned the only true way of getting right with God. So there we see the heart of biblical religion. And remember, experience, experience in history and in the Bible, warns us time and again against trusting that political figures will ever safeguard true religion. Time and again, 
God's people have said, this king will safeguard our religion. This leader will safeguard our religion. And yet, none of them do because they have their own political ends at heart. They tend to want to spread any religion as thin as possible so it covers everyone and avoid every element of exclusivity the way that Eisenhower did. Uh, Especially the importance of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Men uh, in the past in America who have supposedly exalted you know, Christian religion, really what they wanted was just a weak social gospel civil religion that would cover everybody. God bless America, and let's not go further than that. Let's not talk about how we can expect his blessings to occur and so on. Second application, and this is very important. We look at what Jeroboam did in exalting politics above religion, and we say, what foolishness. We may say that. But the problem is that the evidence is here in America today, we are doing exactly the same thing. A LifeWay poll uh, in 2019 came up with this conclusion. More Americans say they would be unhappy if their child married someone from a different political party than someone from a different religious group. A study from Public Religion Research Institute found 25% of American adults say they would be somewhat or very unhappy if their son or daughter married someone from a different faith. Among Republicans, 35% say they would not like their child marrying a supporter of the Democratic Party. 45% of Democrats say the same about their child marrying a supporter of the Republican Party. The statistics were not different for Protestant evangelicals. They were more concerned that their kids not marry somebody from a different political party than somebody from a different religion. Now, we might ask ourselves, well, you know, um, uh, as long as they're hardworking, you know, and they've got a basically Christian-ish religious worldview, and they're from a good family, uh, they're Christianish, like I said, that uh, is not enough. The answer is no, not at all. I'm going to give you two examples, and I have to tell you, these are hard examples. They're not the hardest. I, I, I could give you far more appalling examples. Please believe me on that. But I want to give you two examples that I hope spell out the difference of why it is not enough to marry somebody who has the same political worldview you do but not the same religious worldview that you do. Uh, Here's the first. The first one concerns a wife who married a man from a Christian family who was himself Christian-ish. Like her, he was very conservative. He was very 2A, very patriotic. He was in the military. He went uh, to church fairly regularly. Did this guy read the Bible by himself? No. Uh, Did he pray by himself? No. Was he interested in talking about theology? No. Uh, Except, all right, he wasn't interested in talking about theology, but he was interested, you know, in a a general way of talking about worldview stuff. Uh, Men should be tough. Men should be leaders in the family. Women should be submissive and so on. But, here's the ironic part, did he have any role in family worship? No. Despite all that leadership talk, uh, the wife ended up being the de facto spiritual leader and teacher for herself and the kids. And that's just the way it went on. Well, one day, uh, this fellow uh, was TDY, 
and one of the kids had an accident and it sent the child to the hospital. It was an emergency. So despite the fact that it was 2 a.m. his time, she called him, no answer. She tried an hour later, still no answer. Finally, at 7 a.m., she gets a call back and his voice is very thick. And she asks him, honey, why didn't you answer? I called you at 2 a.m., I called you at 3 a.m. Oh, hon, I, uh, I turned off the ringer. So she says, no, I called you on your work phone. You told me you're never allowed to turn the ringer off on that. That's why you have to duck out, you know, during weddings and social events and, and school stuff and drive back to work at weird hours and so on. Then there's a long pause. Yeah, I guess I did tell you that, didn't I? And then began this nightmare conversation where she learned about her husband's double life. Uh, oh, sure, he was, he was politically conservative, but there was no spiritual basis for it. There was no moral flaw at all. So when temptation came his way, there was no Joseph, you know, with Potiphar's wife reaction. Uh, how, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It was simply an estimation in his mind. Can I get away with this and how long? It's what happens when you have somebody who's making political calculations rather than working from that, that God-entranced vision rather than having a, a stable worldview. There was nothing to stop him. Let me contrast that with another man. Many years ago, we had a... a uh, a giant, this is literally uh, one of the large, I know, Kyle, you're obviously very, very large. This guy was, I, I'm going to call him John Henry. Uh, I honestly thought this guy could have choked me out with his, you know, his thumb and his forefinger. Um, and, and I'm not kidding by that. Uh, he, was, he was honestly so large that he managed to get all five of the solas tattooed either around his, his thigh or his bicep. I, I can't remember. Obviously, the bicep would be more... Uh, more impressive, but just to get that, it's amazing. Uh, he said, incidentally, he did that to start conversations at the gym. He'd been a Christian for a while before he got to our congregation, but he was new to Calvinism, and, uh, but he was on fire for, uh, for the Reformed faith. And so we would go out to lunch, and he would hit me with theological questions uh, for the whole hour. He was the type of guy who would literally write down his questions in advance on a bat, you know, and he would be like, da-da-da-da. Okay, next. <laughs> so I'd be sitting there staring at my food, which was gradually going cold. And, uh, but I, I didn't mind. I, you know, I really didn't mind because I love it. I love it when someone is on fire for Christ and they just they want, to, they want to absorb as much as they possibly can about Christ and then to make him known because he was taking all of this stuff in and then he was, you know, finding people. Hey, let me tell you about, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a wonderful process to watch. And uh, in any event, he gets married to a, a very sweet and sincere Baptist girl. Uh, and she was about half his size. And so to kiss her, he would have had to have bent over at the waist. And she would have had to have stood on tippy toes. And even then, anyway, um, Christian husband, Christian wife. Uh, and they're growing together in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was something wonderful to watch. Anyway. He deployed to Afghanistan with a team, and while they were there, uh, his team was passing around, and this is a long time ago, uh, an external hard disk drive. And what was happening was that, uh, you know, 
guy who got it would watch the stuff that was on it, and then he would add a moral material from his wives, uh, or wives, not plural, they weren't that bad, uh, his wife or girlfriend to the drive, and then pass it on to the next guy. So it was going around the team that way. Eventually, uh, it got to him. <laughs> and, and he basically just handed it back and said, no, I'm good. I don't need to see yours. You don't need to see mine. And besides, I, I don't keep that kind of stuff on my laptop. So they're like, well, dude, what do you do when you're FaceTiming your wife? Bible studies? And he said, well, you know, that's between me and her. But for the record, that is one of the things we actually do. <laughs> you know, they're looking at him like, Anyway, but they started to get mad. He, he's not in this with us. He's other. And then they start thinking, what if his wife begins telling our wives about what's going on here or what was going on before in South America and, and stuff like that and in other places? And then thinly veiled warnings began getting dropped about, uh, you know, remember who's passing you the ammo in the firefight? Wouldn't it be a shame if... We forgot to tell you we were drawing back and stuff like that. So he came back uh, from this deployment and he said to me, um, after telling me about what had gone on while he was away, he said, Andy, I'm getting out. He said, I love my country. I really do. But I love my God and I love my family much, much more. And I have to make a decision between the two. And he said, and it's not a decision for me. I'm, I'm choosing my family. I'm choosing my God. So he got out and he became a cop. Much safer, of course. <laughs> you know? um, but I want to tell you, young men, that's the kind of man you need to be. That's the kind of way you need to serve your God with integrity, no matter what is around you. And young women, that is the kind of man you need to marry. A man who loves the Lord so much that he would rather lose his career than sin against you and the God and Savior that he follows. Not someone who, who votes the way you do, who makes you laugh, who enjoys the same dank memes that you enjoy and things like that. That's not important if they don't have a genuine love for God. Because political expediency, whether it's in a unit or company or wherever, will eventually take hold and they'll start making decisions based upon desires rather than basing uh, upon God's law. Thirdly, and this is my last point, which is good because <coughs> I have no more energy. And it's this. <coughs> Disabuse yourself, please, of thinking. <coughs> Do excuse me. Disabuse yourselves of thinking that politics is more important than religion or that there is any political solution to the problems of mankind. There is no king, there is no president, there is no party, there is no movement that will bring peace and happiness and contentment to a fallen world. There are some politicians out there who will perhaps increase happiness 
But that is in just in accordance with the degree to which they are willing to follow God's instructions. And a politician who cares nothing for those instructions will never bring happiness, only dystopia into the world. But the lesson of the Old Testament that we need to learn is that we need someone better than the best of earthly kings. We need somebody better than obviously a Jeroboam. We need somebody better though than a Solomon. We need somebody better than a David. We need the king of kings. And you remember what Paul said to Timothy? He said, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. That's the king we need, the King of kings. He's the one we need to put our faith in. He's the one we need to follow. He's the one we need to believe on, trust in, and look forward to his reappearing, which we know is yet nearer than we first believed. So don't let yourself be carried along by the promises of worldly leaders. Instead, believe in the promises of God. Put your trust and your dependence upon him, and you will never be misled. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we thank you so much that you cared so much for us, that you were willing to send your only begotten son, Jesus, into the world to die for us. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not be so foolish as to believe that merely because we have political agreement with somebody, that it's because of the right reasons, or that it, Lord, will, will serve any sort of final end. Lord, ultimately we know that the only true salvation can come through, or the only way that true salvation can come, rather, Lord, is through Christ. Help us then to trust in him and to not be beguiled by the siren song of the world. Oh Lord, help us to serve him 